This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie, removed from the frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting. The real thing to start. Hello, and welcome to The Function of Film, a special season brought to you by Bergen Film Club, brought to you by The Real Thing, brought to you by me, Joseph Lawrence. Hi. I'm very excited about this. This is going to be a really cool thing i think so like i said if you've listened to the trailer or if you're just jumping in now hey this is going to be a six part season that's going to take place over the whole summer it's going to be in three parts two episodes a month and the first part that we're starting with is we're going to talk about film projection so function of film basically this whole season is revolving and looking behind the scenes and what is really happening in a cinema and also in film, in music, why do we make movies, so on and so forth. But this first part, like I said, is dealing with projection. I think this is a really overlooked and unsung kind of part of the movie process. I, for one, and I know that probably a lot of people also, you just go to the cinema, you sit down, you watch a film and you leave, but you don't think that this show that you've just watched has basically been created for you by one person that whole experience has been curated by a projectionist someone is controlling the lights they're controlling the screen the movie everything is under their control in that cinema room and we're going to learn about that today and that's going to be really cool so we were joined by alexa rainsbeck who has been a projectionist for over 20 years she has projected at many places and she is amazing and very intelligent an awesome person so it was great to talk to her and get educated so this first part we're going to be learning about projection specifically just what is projection what is the role of the job and yeah basically i'm calling it who's behind the curtain so we're going to start with that and the second part is dealing with the future of projection as a medium, where it's going, where it's come from, and maybe some other kind of trials and tribulations. That episode will be out in two weeks' time. But for now, let's get into the interview. I really hope you enjoy it because I loved doing this. It was very, very fun. So, without any more waiting, let's go. Hello. Hi. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing all of your expertise and opinions on projectioning <laughs> and to teach teach everyone and myself about the art of projectioning. So just to start off, can you introduce yourself and say what you do? Hi, um, so I'm Lexi uh, and I've been a cinema projectionist now for almost 20 years. Um, I don't do it full-time anymore. I do it freelance and I tend to teach and train around the subject. Um, 
uh, I actually work in software now, but um, yeah, for a long time, I was the person in the projection room putting these films on for people to watch. Mm. What kind of software are you working in now? Uh, the digital cinema software. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, so I think I was more interested. So a lot of my questions and a lot of the quotes that I have are coming from this documentary that I watched a couple of days ago. An oral history of London cinema projectionists, which um, you yes. were in. Yes, I was. Yeah. <laughs> there you were. Um, and a question that they asked, which I thought was really nice, was how did you get into projectioning? So, oh. could you tell us a bit about that? So, my my first job was working in a cinema. Um, it was a local multiplex um, in sort of the largest the largest town near me. Um, I lived in a smaller village, so I had to um, transport into the larger town to actually get some work. Uh, and it was generally just work. Um, it was generally so I could just get some money because uh, I was going through college at the time. Um, and I was 17. Um, and I started out on the box office and sort of on the floor. So like selling tickets, um, cleaning screens, serving popcorn, so all of those kind of functions. Mm -hmm. um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but there was always this door at the end of the cinema that was... Um, uh, restricted um actually have a sign that's saying um you know restricted area so on so forth. and i was just really interested in what was behind the door so um for a long time i yeah i just um i was just just really interested in kind of what productionists might be doing um yeah. and i kept badgering them and asking them you know kind of what they did and like could i see the production room and kind of over time that paid off um, there was a point where I went to university, so I was working in my old cinema sort of during um, holidays and then in my other cinema during term time, and I was doing it in both cinemas, like trying to get friendly with the productionist and kind of okay. uh, see what was going on. <laughs> and it did eventually pay off. Um, I did get to sort of help them out with bits and pieces, and that's how I gradually started learning. Um, and then it was in the cinema where I went to uni. Um, there, a, a few of the objections left. So I sort of went to the manager and I said, oh, I really want to be a projectionist. Um, I, I was working my way up the cinema at that point anyway, because I'd been a supervisor and I'd also been looking after local marketing. So there was quite a few sort of bits I was already doing so I could kind of be trusted. So yeah. um, I got given a chance to do it, which was really good. Um, and at the start, I was known as... Um, it's a term called ghost. So basically, I'd be ghosting other projectionists. I'd just be following them around and watching what they did. Okay. Um, and then after a little bit of time, I was allowed to be trusted with smaller parts and um, sort of actually physically doing stuff. Um, and then eventually, off the back of that, I was able to get a contract with a film projectionist. And kind of had to prove yourself. Um, oh. But it was just out of it. A lot of it, I, I suppose, it was out of curiosity. <laughs> that was mm -hmm. the first. The first sort of uh, reason. Yeah, I thought that just on that, a great quote from the documentary was saying that the projectionists are like lighthouse keepers mm -hmm. in the sense that you like don't actually know if someone is there or not. But I do get that it's sort of like a mysterious thing. You really don't see what's going on behind the scenes when you're just attending a cinema. So it yeah. is uh, mysterious. When the whole concept of the role is that you're invisible, that's the, you know, if you're a good projectionist, you're absolutely invisible because mm -hmm. what you're doing, um, the artistry of it and the actual technical element of it is not supposed to be seen by the audience. 
you're kind of just dropping them like a lullaby in a way into the dream world of whatever film it is. Mm-hmm. And if you've done that correctly, people will just be focused on the cinema screen and not what's going on in the projection room behind them. Yeah. So yeah, it's um yeah, it's absolutely one of those jobs where you are sort of invisible and it's only when something goes up, you know, something goes horribly wrong that people are suddenly realise, oh <laughs> what's going on? Um, yeah. it's ruined my film. So um yeah, it's it's it is I yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a unique job. Mm-hmm. So, can you describe a little bit like what sort of responsibilities you were taking on when you were first learning to be a projectionist? Because I think here I really just want people to l- learn about it, I guess, because it is sort of this, like you said, behind the behind the screen sort of thing. So, um, so we, um, so a lot of it was cleaning. It's really important to have clean projection rooms. So you have to clean mm-hmm. down the projectors. You have to actually keep the whole projection room clean as well. So a lot of it was cleaning, cleaning things. Um, then it was when a film would come in, it would come in in several reels. Um, I'd say a t- typical film would be about five or six reels, but you do get ones for the longer, longer than that. Um, yeah. And with the reels, um, you had to basically check the film because it's probably been projected before it's come to the cinema. So you have to you have to basically run the film through your fingers um, each. Uh, holding each edge because you have to feel for any kind of um, damage to the film which might uh, cause an issue when you're projecting mm-hmm. um, it depends on the type of stock that you're running there is several different base stocks some are stronger than others but um, with acetate stock which was sort of used between 1950 and the early 2000s or 90s um, if you had a little split in it, that could just easily snap in the projector and you'd actually have the whole film snap and stop and go off screen. So it's okay. really, really important that you feel for any kind of um, nicks or kind of cuts in the film. And um, if you do find any, you then have to repair them. And that's generally done with splicing tape. Um, so it, it's like some tape, but it's not some tape. Um, I'm going to okay. emphasize that very strongly because... Um, <laughs> Projectionists who uh, run out of splicing tape and um, have been cellar tape are um, very, very naughty people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it, what what the difference is is the glue on the back of it specialist. So um, you have the ability to peel off um, the tape with ease without damaging the film. Um, if you use cellar tape, unfortunately, it will absolutely damage the film, um, okay. especially after it's been uh, put through a hot lamp. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you do generally use splicing tape to attempt to kind of um, fix any of these these issues. Um, you might um, you might use a few other methods, like um, potentially, like um, if there's been a sort of uh, damage to the edge, you might have to sort of uh, gently cut into it just to kind of get rid of any sharp edges or anything, which again could pull and potentially break in your projector. So, there's sort of a few things you can do to. Right. Um, fix film. So that's that's the first thing to check, and you're checking for scratches as well. So either side of a film can get scratched. Um, the bit where the film, the actual image of the film, is printed on it, and the base, which is the other side. Um, and scratches generally look like nines, but when you actually project them on screen, there you'll see even the very long black line going down the picture. 
Mm. Or you might get coloured ones. Uh, so it depends which side of the film has been scratched. There's not a lot you can do about that. <laughs> it, um, it depends. Um, if there's another print around, you might be able to call up the distributor and say, hey, this print's not in good condition. Can you send another one down? But um, okay. it's good to know what condition the film is in because you might need to make a decision as to whether you can show it or not. Yeah, well. So whilst changing the damage, you also... So this is where it changes depending on the type of projection system you've got. Mm-hmm. Um, there are three types of film projection. There's reel-to-reel, there's tower projection, and there is platter projection. So reel-to-reel is the archive standard, and it's the oldest type of film projection that's been around. And that's where you have two projectors. Um, and basically, uh, you have one reel on the first projector and a second reel on the second projector. And... Um, you at the front of each reel is a countdown leader that got the numbers. So, mm-hmm. you know, nine to sort of three. Um, and you generally need to put um, that in the correct place. And that allows for the project to get, to get up to speed when you start it. So you'll have reel one on. It's showing the film to the audience. And the end of the reel is coming up. At that point, you're going to be looking for cue dots or what's also colloquially, colloquially known as cigarette burns. They're kind okay. of the dots or marks that you'll see in the top right-hand corner of the screen. Yeah. Um, if you're watching some old films on television that they've not sort of cleaned up, you might actually see them. Uh, and if you're watching, yeah, okay. watching, watching uh, an older thing on television, so you like, can look out for that. But um, they're rarely printed on four frames of uh, the film. Uh, so it's, it's, they're very, very quickly gone. So yeah. um, the first set, there's two sets of dots. The first set of dots near the end of the reel is to tell us to start the motor on the second projector. So that projector then gets up to speed. And then you'll see the next set of dots. And that's when you open up um, the picture on the second projector because the projector at that point has got up to speed and you're also opening up the sound. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other projector is kind of closing down. So effectively, you're doing this dance between both projectors to keep continuity with the film. So it's reel one, reel two, reel three, reel four. Mm-hmm. And that's generally the archive standard because um, the heads and tails of the film. So I said about the media a minute ago, and at the end of the film, there's a bit of tail as well. Um, mm-hmm. When a film is printed, it comes with these and it keeps generally keeps the film sort of um, protected from damage. And they're not cut by the projectionist in this way of projecting. Um, when you do a platter or a tower system, the other two systems I mentioned earlier, that's where you have to actually put the film together all in one large reel. So you can't oh. have the um, start of each reel sort of there, otherwise you're going to be showing bits of your <laughs> in between each reel. So generally what you have to do is cut um, where the last frame of film is or the second frame if you're keeping a reference frame. And then you cut the head of the next reel and you kind of join them together with the slicing tape and it becomes one really large, big film print. Um, mm. Platter is just as it sounds. It's just a very large plate. Um, okay. The film is spread, fed to the projector off of this plate uh, and goes through a series of rollers and then goes back onto another plate. You don't need to rewind this type of film projection. You do with reel-to-reel because the you know the reel goes from top to bottom mm-hmm. and when um it's gone through the projector it's tail put out so it's at the end of the film or the end of the real world there so you have to go back and rewind it it's definitely for showing it again <laughs> if you put it through the projector that way it's gonna be uh backwards it's not good 
Um, <laughs> with the platter system, you don't need to rewind. Um, it would just go back onto another plate and wrap around. And again, when you need to get the film again, you would um, put a device in known as a brain or a feeding unit, and that would relay up to the projector from the middle each time. So it was a way that kind of eliminated having to do rewinding. And the yeah. tower system's very similar. It's, it's just a very, very large school. It's about 6,000 but no bigger than that, actually, probably eight to ten thousand really big, really big spools. Mm. Um and again it's just a dump all in one go. It's the kind of um depending on how you're projecting is how you would make the film or put the film together. But okay. regardless of that, you'd still have to check the damage and check everything was okay. Yeah. Um generally as well, if you're doing the real to real type of film projection, you need to write down the few dots. Because you might not be the protectionist actually running the film. Um, it's great if you are, because you sort of seen the film. Um, mm-hmm. If you're making it up, so you might know where it is. Um, they do come in sort of different styles. And mm-hmm. um, especially if the ends of the film have been sort of cut over time, which um, can happen with the platter type of projection, you might start losing frames from the end of the reels, in which case the Q dots might also have gone. So you then need to shift marking the Q dots further in to keep the timing. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so um, one of the most important things is to write down what the cues are from the protectionist who's running them, even for yourself, because you might make it up on a Thursday and then protect it on a Sunday. Yeah. You've totally forgotten, <laughs> totally forgotten what they are. So extensive notes is really, really important. And also extensive notes on damage is really important or the quality of the film, because... Um, you need to kind of keep a record and especially if something happens to the film um after you sent it away from your cinema um like it's uh, had a bad projectionist or uh, someone who's not trained to run it um or even just an accident because they do happen um you need to be able to prove that it wasn't you or your cinema that had done that okay. um so yeah extensive notes as well um so then after you've made the film market be a question of making sure you you need to also work out the ratio and the sound track type um okay. and you have to set the projector up with relation to those two things um and then i guess yeah you're kind of show ready at that point as long as you clean the projector down and you're good to go you then thread it or lace it uh through the projector mm-hmm. um and then you can run your film <laughs> yeah just learning about it and even just hearing that now i've never done uh reel-to-reel production myself but it it sounds like the people who do it and do it well are very impressive people because it sounds like you had to be completely in control. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have to be focused um, and yeah. you definitely have to. There's a level of kind of adrenaline that you need to do it as well because you need to be on your toes, but then you can't mm-hmm. get too anxious because if you get too anxious, um, things will start going wrong for you. just find this. You got to kind of find this medium where you're you're on edge and you're there and it's live and it's got to go well, but then not not feel too weighed down by all of that. Yeah. So you just mentioned as well, um, including sound and all that kind of incorporating the whole cinema experience mm-hmm. into that. Um, so I think you know if people already weren't thinking about the projectionist showing the film. You, they may not also think about them controlling the lights, mm-hmm. controlling the sound of the cinema. Um, and a, another great thing for the documentary was everyone was sort of talking about the 
showmanship element of being a projectionist, even though it's kind of a almost a thankless position. Was the sort of showmanship something you became fond of, or was it something you were uh, attracted to at the beginning? Uh, I was absolutely attracted to it at the beginning because I'm a quite a creative person. I have a good eye for things. Um, I'm also very technical, so the two things actually came together really well. So I got to express both sides of myself through that. Um, so yeah, it's generally termed showmanship or presentation. Um, I tend to say presentation. I think some of the other older projectionists tend to use the term showmanship. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really important. There's a lot of little, thing, little things that we do to um, make the cinema experience the best it can be to people. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things we do is the non-synchronized sound, or we, we call it non-sync. That's basically just music as you walk into the auditorium. Um, so it's really, really important to pick a complementary soundtrack. You don't ever want to run the soundtrack of the film that you're playing because you know, it can actually undermine when it's being heard in the film. So mm-hmm. it's really, really important you find something that kind of suits it. You don't want something that's completely different to the film either, because then it, it just doesn't quite work. Yeah. So um, it's just finding something for each film that complements the soundtrack. Um, and what we try to do is run the last track. We try and work out the countdown. So the doors will open, say, 20 minutes before the film. So you mm-hmm. can then set the CD player or whatever mode or potentially MP3s, however people are doing it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, I'm, I, some of the places I've worked, we've had a cassette player, we've had mini disc, we've had MP3, we've had, wow. uh, we've had <laughs> CDs. Because mm-hmm. actually, projectionists tend to keep a very large uh, library of soundtracks around or, or just mm-hmm. different types of music so they can just cater to every potential film that they're going to show. Wow. Um, so what we would try and do is end the last track right at the time that you're going to start your film because you don't particularly want to cut into, um, you know, the film half, you know, start the film halfway through a song or something because it might sort of slightly ruin the am- am- uh, um, ambience. Yes. So, uh, so that's one of the things. Um, some of the older or some of the more independent cinemas will have uh, curtains or what we term as tabs with sort of lighting or nice lighting on. And okay. it could also be a blank screen with some lighting on. So again, we'd uh, set that up and make sure so that's looking really nice. And then it's really important that we get the timing correct when we open up the film. So you have the house lights coming down, you're going to have your tab lights coming down, and then you're going to have the sort of curtains or tabs opening just at the right moment to um, open up the film to hit the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually seen as rude in the profession to show an empty or blank screen. It's actually quite commonplace nowadays, but um, yeah, okay. going back in terms of the tenets of film production in the profession, bad showmanship is showing a blank screen. You <laughs> should technically should never, never see a blank screen. Oh, so the okay. idea is that there's even lighting or curtains covering it up right into the moment the first frame of the film is shown. So it's all about the timing of that as well. And you don't want things to be too abrupt because that's when the audience will notice it. So if you just slam the lights off, you know, from full to, you know, completely dark, that's, that's not <laughs> going to work out very nicely. No. Um, and again, I said, I mentioned earlier about cleaning everything. A lot of that is also part of presentational showmanship because you don't want to be uh, causing damage to the film. 
or causing scratches. So by keeping everything clean and uh, running well, um, you know that you're projecting the film to the best of it, your ability, and the mm. film is being shown as best as it can be. We have a really important job because we're effectively the last um, people in the chain, you know, on the people that worked in the film. You, you have all these people in production and distribution who worked on the film. They're putting all these hours. Um, you know, the directors kind of really worked hard to get everything as perfect as possible. But then if you have a bad projectionist and a bad, <laughs> a yeah. bad film print, that can all go out the window. You know, um, how, you know, the lovely cinematography or the, the amazing soundtrack, it, it, it can all be ruined if it's not projected correctly. So yeah. it's kind of really important that we try to uphold the standards, you know, it's quite an important job. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, the first time, uh, actually, I was so, I was reflecting on this recently, actually, since I have had some experience with projecting. The first time that I saw Blade Runner 2049, mm-hmm. uh, the lights didn't get brought down. Oh, no. <laughs> so the lights were on and the screen was sort of like washed out and the sound was sort of really quiet yeah. and I thought and I thought that I didn't like the movie yeah <laughs> because I had such a bad time in the cinema but then I watched it again at home and I was like oh it actually rules it just that experience the atmosphere was so bad that it actually made me not enjoy the film yeah and that that is literally how powerful the <laughs> that the yeah, is yeah. um yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've definitely had similar experiences, and I've gone back later and realised actually it was it was the presentation rather than the actual film itself. Um, yeah. So yeah, I can totally relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so cool just hearing about all the stuff that projectionists do because I've kind of gone so long in my life without thinking about them, and now every time I'm in a cinema, now I'm like thinking who's behind there and who's controlling what and creating that atmosphere it's uh it's really cool i think yeah i'm afraid it's gonna that, that was once you peek behind the curtain <laughs> yeah <laughs> the magic just starts to go uh-huh. <laughs> um but i love it you know I, I wouldn't i wouldn't change it yeah returning to sort of the atmosphere just kind of a closing question one big thing in the um because I, I know this kind of topic is slightly polarizing to people they were talking about creating this atmosphere and enjoying people talking about the film and really enjoying it at the end what's your stance on clapping at the end of a screening i don't have a problem with that i mean um Mm -hmm. if people clap that's great because that means they've enjoyed the film and hopefully Mm -hmm. also enjoyed my projection of the film yeah um to be honest i feel like there are worse things like such as people on their mobile phones sorry i believe believe it or not computers i've looked down to see people on computers, you know massive white screen and it's halfway through the film and you're you know i'm having to call someone to go and get them to <laughs> to speak to that person because wow. uh, you know i feel sorry for the people behind them but I, I feel like that's probably more of an issue than say clapping at the end of the film and to, for me i think express that's great yeah, people people are enjoying it so mm-hmm. I, you know it feels it does feel nice when you hear that so yeah, I know it's I've... not for me, but I can pretend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Always for me, uh, I've always, maybe until I was about 14, 15, I was just going to like the, there's an Odeon where I live at home in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Always going there and it's that sort of like the standard experience. But I started going to this independent cinema in 
Newcastle, the Tyneside Cinema. People were always clapping then, and I was kind of really taken aback the first time that I saw it because I was like, why is everyone clapping? But then it is kind of nice. I guess you're like thanking the projectionists without even knowing that you're thanking them, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I, just, I think it's just people's expression of enjoyment and yeah, that's, that's fine. And people are laughing together. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the cool parts of actually going to the cinema. You know, it's that... Mm-hmm. Um, that experience amongst other people, most of them strangers, um, you know, and if you're having the same re- reactions at the same points in the film, it's reaffirming your reaction. And I think that's why that's why it can't be replicated in the home environment as much. You know, when people are streaming or at home, it's just it's just not quite the same experience. There's something yeah. about going out and being amongst other people that really makes it special. Yeah, for me, it's kind of not even like a question of comparison. They're so different. And like you said, going to the cinema is like an experience and it's it's an activity and it's I don't think it's comparable at all. It's sad that it sort of gets brought into this whole streaming stuff. It's not great. Uh, you mentioned before about that it's important to sort of have this sort of level of anxiety uh, to kind of keep your, the adrenaline going and keep the energy going, but the, you can't be too much. You have to keep it in check. Um, but I was wondering if you had any. I think it's always fun to hear examples of when things don't go well. <laughs> so I was wondering if you had any uh, kind of fun examples of when maybe things haven't gone so well in a script. Yeah, I think I think we all have the, those closets that we like to keep shut. <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly. Um... Yeah, I think the one that I often go back to is um, so one of the um, so I used to work um, in a cinema that did platter systems. So that's where you would have effectively ten screens potentially, and there's just one projectionist looking after those ten screens. And that's mm-hmm. why reel to reel can't be used in that kind of environment as well, because yeah. uh, you're required to just be at that single screen and switch the reels between the projectors. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a platter system. Um, just me. <laughs> I just looked after ten screens all at once. Um, it was that and a little bit of automation that made made it possible. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the practices that used to happen was known as interlocking. So um, films are generally rented by cinemas. They're not bought or or um, paid for outright because film prints are just so expensive. So mm-hmm. um, they would generally be rented, and um, on a big film release. Um, even the cost of renting would be quite high. So, and, and, you know, imagine you want to show um, the newest film in, say, three or four screens. You're going to need three or four film prints. Um, But if you you sort of do that, calculate that per cinema, the cost very, very quickly starts adding up. So what one of the practices that used to happen was known as interlocking. So that's where we would run one film print through two projectors or even three projectors at a time. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, um, and you often you'd have all this celluloid sort of uh, making its way around the projection room. It was a bit like a web, um, if, you can, if you can imagine yeah. it, because they had to get from wow. one projector to another. So it might not be adjacent screens. It might be screen one, then screen five, and then screen ten. So we're, we're having to climb sort of through the moving celluloid and not accidentally <laughs> wow. through it or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was it was not that used to cause me anxiety. But um on one of the times that I um 
went and do this. Um, one of my projectors had a fault. Um, and you know, I mentioned earlier about the film has to sort of gently start up and get up to speed. Um, yeah. You can't, you can't sort of start a motor straight at the, you know, at the right at the maximum speed because then we'll start causing uh, damage to it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, basically, my projector had that problem. It would start at the highest speed, um, so the slow start wasn't working. Um, but he would only do it really occasionally, and no one could work out like what's <laughs> happening. Um, and it just so happens that I was running an interlock and um, that actually means that you have to lock the projectors in and then they have to be in perfect sync with each other, you know, running exactly the same speed and frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as I'd started it up, um, it did that. It's <laughs> going oh. at max speed while the other projector was, was there ramping up. And so that snapped, that snapped the film, which meant then I had two films off screen. Um yeah. So then um, my projectionist and I, um, there were a few of us on at that time, um, we managed to sort of splice it back together. And when you're splicing it in situ on the film projector, that's actually very difficult. It's not it's not the same as where you're making up the film, which is usually on the makeup bench. You know, you've got a sort of specialist area for that. When you're actually having to mm-hmm. do it physically on the projector, it's a lot harder. And yeah. you have the pressure. You have the pressure then as well as the managers sort of calling up and going, what's going on? <laughs> 500 people down here going, why is my film not on? So um, you sort of have to do that under pressure. And knowing that that projector had this issue, we couldn't then interlock it the same way. So the question was, do we cancel the screenings or do we try and get it on? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we ended up doing was like a fully manual start on an interlock, which is actually a very difficult thing to do because you've got to get two projectionists starting at exactly the same time. Um, and that's not an easy, <laughs> an easy oh, thing oh, to do. But we managed it. We did it. We got it on. Um, but just before I um, did that, I had to go and walk up to the centre of the projection box. Um, so the reset box in the UK, it's a uh, reading projection room. Uh, box is the UK term for it. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and um, there was something known as a matrix board, and it was sort of the centralized automation that helped link the projectors together. Um, and I had to reprogram this board to allow us to keep projecting uh, or to re- reset off that interlock. And um, there was also a fault with the board. And oh. what happened is when I reprogrammed it, it took out another interlock that was running further down the cinema. So at that point, I had four screens out. <laughs> the number of people um, <laughs> I my film not on screen. So yeah, that was that was definitely a nightmare. Um, a nightmare shift. But we we got it all back on. We got it all running, and everyone got oh. to see the film. So I suppose oh, it wasn't yeah. cancelled screening. But I still I, I still have nightmares about it. <laughs> Even now, really it's been almost probably 15 years, 18 yeah. maybe. <laughs> oh. Do you remember what uh, film it was? Oh. I feel like I want to say Spider-Man 3. Um, mm. I might be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I heard all in the documentary and I was reading different kind of stories and stuff that people accidentally not checking the reel and showing the wrong film or Stuff like that, I think. It sounds very stressful, but good they there's always a seemingly always a solution. Yeah, you well, there's not always, but you can you uh, again, this is very theoretically you can train someone to be a projectionist within maybe weeks. Um mm-hmm. 
And it depends sort of how, I suppose it depends like how well people pick it up. But really, um, in terms of experience, you need to have two to three years under your belt before you can really sort of, you know, know what you're doing. So mm-hmm. a lot of it is, it's fine when it's running fine, but when it's not running fine, that's <laughs> where the skill and the training comes in. Yeah. Um, and really, it, it's experience that makes that. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have to be able to keep your, keep a cool head, you have to be able to react really fast, um, and you have to kind of come up with a technical solution, usually it's very quickly uh, about what you're going to do. Um, so it's that that kind of makes objectionist, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's more tech uh, knowledge than you would think that you need. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's yeah, there's a lot of technical knowledge, and um, it's it's very different as well between um, even just groups of projectionists and even countries, like the level of knowledge and what people is in. Um, in the UK, at least, um, we were required to change the lamps in the projectors. Now, the lamps are um, extremely dangerous. They're under a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, they're made of glass as well, and they've got sort of gas inside. So there's a potential for explosion if they're not handled correctly. And if they're if they're actually on and in the projector, um, you absolutely can't sort of like open sort of the side of it and look because um, you'd get UV sort of damage um yeah. and essentially if it were to explode when it was hot the safety equipment if you were wearing any it, it would be quite catastrophic so um we were required to sort of change those in the UK and it was fine we had training and everything but I I sort of discovered um later on that um other places would require an engineer to do it so mm. there are kind of different levels of training um and engineering sort of level to different projection dress so that kind of plays into it as well um i'd say um uh yeah I've, I've definitely sort of done quite a bit of engineering in my time so um that kind of does help but the other thing that's uh really helpful is you have to have this sort of extensive historical knowledge because right. you have to understand the different film bases um and there's been three throughout history there's nitrate which is extremely flammable and you can't just go projecting that. Um, it has to be projected in a uh, in a specific environment with specific safety measures on the projecting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm one of the people that can do it and has projected it, but it's it's extremely rare. Um, you then have to know. I mentioned a bit earlier the sort of the difference between the safety bases as well, sort of acetate and polyester, because that can also affect. If something goes wrong in the projector, polyester yeah. is extremely strong, can actually pull it over. I've, um, I've seen videos on YouTube where, like, uh, where um, polyester is like, actually pulled projectors over. Wow. Um, so it can really sort of damage, um, whereas acetate is more likely to split or to just uh, burn up very quickly. So even though it's safety film, you that kind of um, image of the film burning on the screen, that's mm-hmm. usually sort of acetate. Um, polyester can sort of do that, but it's nowhere near as much. So, and certainly if it's nitrate, well, then your whole projector's on fire and you have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, no, so you have to know your bases. You have to understand um, the sort of time periods that they occurred in, so you can actually make an act. You know, you have to understand the type of uh, marks on the film to look for to know which base are using, and then aspect ratios. Um, so these are the these are kind of shape of the picture that we project. 
Um, and there's, there's just a, it's a historical. So the first aspect ratio was 133, and then it was 119, then it was 137, and then up and up and up and up. So to also understand what aspect ratio that you're potentially looking at, you have to have the historical concept of when this yeah. film print was made. Not necessarily from the film, but the film print um to actually work out what they show that you're going to be showing it in um i mean yeah it, it, it's supposed to be on the real cans and that but you can't really trust that you have to actually look yourself and um so many times i've come across films that have got the wrong aspect ratios sort of written on them so you have to really sort of know your history around that to know what you're looking at and then again with sound soundtracks as well and the type of soundtrack um there are different types. There's magnetic, there's optical, there's digital. Um, most film soundtracks today, or most films that are produced today, if they're being made on celluloid, will have both an analog and a digital track. You might even have multiple digital tracks. So um, you sort of have to know what format that you're playing back in. And in regards to optical tracks, there's quite a lot of different types of optical tracks. There's variable area, variable density, Um there's also then different types of um, uh, compression and stuff that was put on them or decoding that's needed. So, yeah, you really have to sort of know know what you're looking at and how to play the film back. So that requires a lot of historical hmm. um, and also potentially geogra- geographic knowledge. So a lot of films, a lot of different territories from around the world sort of had technologies um change at different times so what might be true in say america might not be true in europe so yeah it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot but it's so it like must it must just be uh how do i say this uh you just i feel like you would just want to know more about everything <laughs> there's so much to know there's so much to learn it sounds like a really fascinating job I mean, I feel like I'm still learning. It's been a very long time. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, just to close up this first part, at least, which is just about projection. One of my favorite quotes from the, or maybe my favorite quote from the from the documentary, was uh, this one man saying that most projectionists are weird people who like working alone in the dark. Is that how you would describe the average projectionist, or is there, that's just sort of a sweeping statement? Good question. Um, so, I when I started off as a projectionist, I was generally single manning, so that would be just me in the cinema doing projection. But mm-hmm. you also were part of a team, and it was really important that everyone in the team pulled together because if I got handed over a complete mess, I'd be very, very upset with my my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And same, same. Um, so it was about making sure the work got done whilst also running everything. Um, and when you're doing that kind of projection, um, single manning, as I, as I said, um, you have to be able to be on your own. You have to be able to not need socialization. Um, and I, it's funny, it's, it, that is actually very difficult for a lot of people. So it does take a certain type of person to be able to do that. Um, but then, Later in my career, I did work in uh, uh, more real-to-real spaces where there were large complements of projectionists. So there was always a projectionist around, you know, that I'd be working with, and that was that was cool as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I personally, for me, um, I absolutely am happy and can be in my own company and don't need to socialize. Um, 
on at the other hand, I don't mind socializing with others as well. And actually, as a person, I find it kind of difficult. Um, and I think that's probably true of quite a few protectionists. I don't want to generalize too much. Mm-hmm. But I'd say that a lot of them are kind of techie people, potentially a bit nerdy. Um, yeah, maybe some weird. Let's say you tell a weird. Yeah, I would go as far as saying that. Um, but I generally, I think there is a type of person that does film projection. Um, generally, they're people that are very attentive to detail. They're quite creative as well. Um, technical. Um, and some of them do struggle with social aspects of life, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and I think probably that's why for some people um, they're good at being on their own and can work on their own. Because when you run into a massive problem, there is no one to fall back on. It's just you up there. Yeah. So, um, you have to be able to sort of handle and manage that. And I think, um, and yeah, maybe maybe that makes people weird. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I uh, I can uh, I can understand. I kind of not that I like personally would want all the pressure on myself, but in a way, it's like nicer if it's just you because you kind of. This sounds really bad, but like you can't be let down anyone else far from yourself absolutely yeah yeah don't know if that's a good thing but that's uh mm-hmm. yeah so that is the end of part one of function of film we just learned who's behind the curtain and next episode which is going to be called going digital it's going to be all about the future and the past and what is happening in the current state of projection um it was this one, the one that's coming, was really, really cool. I learned a lot. And I don't know, as you heard this episode, Lexi has such great insights and she's so knowledgeable and so amazing. So it was so great to have her for this second part as well. So definitely check that out in a couple of weeks time. But I really hope that you enjoyed this. It was such a pleasure talking to Lexi and learning all about this is so cool. And doing the podcast is very cool. Thank you. Goodbye. This has been a Birkin Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pierre Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joe Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilbgaibern and Mamina Nazmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at birkinfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.